Stefan Osic. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Living in Service podcast, hosted by yours truly, Stefan Osic. It's a damn pleasure to have you tuning in once again for another exploration and endeavor into new insights, new explorations, new ideas, and new ways of assimilating these people and these guests and taking their wisdom and incorporating it into your everyday life. This episode was an absolute stellar exploration of what I just said and we got to explore and journey and learn about elite athlete and ultra endurance runner Zach Bitter. If you have probably heard of him, it might have been because he was on Joe Rogan and he was sharing his journey into the world record of the 100 miles track. That alone is something that we really kind of got immersed into because you've got to understand that to achieve that sort of pace, you've got to be running about 4 minute 15, maybe less per kilometre in the New Zealand metric, which I think is like 6, what is it, like 630s, 640s per mile for the US listeners, um, 400 miles essentially, and he achieved this in 11 hours and 19 minutes and 40 something seconds, so just sitting on that and really understanding the capacity to do such a task in itself is enough to really sit back and want to take notes when listening to this man and we really got to go down that path and I was really feverishly taking notes throughout this whole conversation you even hear me in the conversation tapping my pen trying to keep up with this man because he's a very astute individual Um, We got to really talk about his training modalities, talking about his diet and how incorporating a low-carb, higher-protein, higher-fat way of eating has really helped and aided in his recovery. We also talk about utilizing carbohydrates in his training load. We talk about uh, the translation of how training and endurance feats can be transferred into everyday life. Essentially, what can you take away from going through such intense, long, sustained efforts? And how can you take those lessons and those pieces of wisdom that one would pick up and incorporate them into everyday life? Um, We also get to talk about the process of going through 100 miles, where his mind goes, what comes up, what does he have to encounter, what does he have to confront and overcome? This is a real, a real bound bounded uh, conversation within within the realms of athleticism and endurance but as I said in that question of what we um, talked about it's the translation of these sorts of people and it's the taking of notes and transferring the skill sets and the mentality into everyday life because we can learn from everyone essentially and this is what this whole conversation is about and what my whole podcast is about meeting people that are living intentional lives uh so i won't ramble on much longer uh thanks again for tuning in and i'd like to give a little quick shout out to the sponsor first kind of official sponsor and that's my company so well uh we are aiming and bringing forth services providing you to basically living a more intentional thorough 
and more impactful life. And what that pertains to is I teach yoga. I am currently in the process of getting a nutrition certification and I do health coaching. So this is something that I've been really working on and trying to get out into the masses, so to say. And this is my first official pursuit in that where I am putting it on the airwaves. So the website is sowellness.net where you can find some of my services and I'll be providing you links and basically what it is I do. And you can also find it um, via Instagram and that's just at Stefan Ozich where there's more info there. So to Sow Wellness, that's that's the first sponsor. So I thank you for that. Um, thanking myself really. And um, yeah, that is all. Oh, also quickly, um, you're going to hear it in the conversation. The first 22 minutes of this conversation, um, I was recording this on Zoom and unfortunately I didn't press record. So the first 22 minutes of this audio was um, foraged from my phone audio and I had to work my magic to bring it to life. So just bear that in mind that when you're in this conversation you're going to hear a change up in audio quality and that is why so i will love you and leave you uh thanks again for tuning in and i hope you enjoy speak soon record on my phone audio and i have that as like a reinforced backup as well as the zoom audio and it's actually been quite effective so for now so yeah i'm nice. impressed um how's how's the body feeling good yeah yeah really good so got a few good weeks of training in post um last hundred miler mm. and looking at some races in 2023 not too far from now so i think things are heading in the right direction yeah awesome i see you just finished that texas uh hundred mile your first one so texas yeah 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 and that went well yeah yeah it was uh i had a I guess a few extra goals with that one, given I was coming off an injury leading into that training block. Mm, so mm. it was kind of good to do the hundred mile distance and then kind of confirm that just the race itself and the days after didn't have any sort of like negative repercussions on that. So I can maybe lean into training a little more aggressively uh, for mm. the next stuff, which is going to be nice. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, might as well get going. Um, first of all, thanks so much for doing this, Zach. It really means a lot. You know, being someone of your stature, it's kind of funny that you're, I don't know. I think we have these um, ideas that uh, it's, it's out of reach and then yet here we are. So, yeah, I really appreciate <laughs> it. Mm. Yeah, I love podcasts. I started doing podcasts, I think, a little over 10 years ago and before most people knew what they were, I think. Yeah. So some people hang out on Instagram all day. I like hanging out on podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the human uh, performance outliers, right? That's. Yep. Yeah. And and you began that with Sean Baker. Is that is that yes. correct? Yeah. And then it... I think we started that. Must have been around 2007. No, maybe it's a little later than. No, I think around 2017, end of the year, maybe. Oh wow! So you're really a podcasting OG, for lack of a better term. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I got in before the pandemic, which is, I think, when it saw its big spike. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, great. Well, just to start her off, um, just for those listening, I'm um, coming in from this uh, approach where I gave you a bit of a synopsis, but basically the podcast is really about interviewing people that live very well-meaning, well-intentional lives coming from endurance athletes, coming from nutritionists. I interviewed an ex-gang member who basically saw the light, so to say, um, I've interviewed professors, so people ranging from very various uh, lifestyles and ways of living, and 
I've been aware of you for a few years now. Uh, I actually listened to you originally, I think it might have been through Joe Rogan, but it might have been prior to that. But I was at that time, I hadn't done any running anything at least past the marathon. And then once I heard of what it is that you achieved, which was at the time the uh, world record, the American, no, world record for the 100 mile track. And when I heard the times you got, which for New Zealand's um, time difference, it's four minute 13 Ks and six minute 48 per miles, which is in my brain, it's just like, I couldn't really comprehend that. I didn't even think it would be something physically possible. And then that was kind of what led me down the path and led me to following you and your modalities. And so, yeah, that's why we're here. I'd love to just delve in, explore, and just, yeah, have have the lay person that isn't really a runner to the person that's a avid athlete to kind of get something. And I'm sure that you will present that today. So, yeah, thanks again for being willing. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, I guess we could start off briefly just with a little background, Zach, for those listening, starting off from like how you got into running and where it all began for you. Um, and yeah, just to start from there, we can springboard from there. Sure. Yeah, I got into running pretty early, but I didn't really take it all that seriously until a bit later. So I think I did my first my first real endurance race in a PE class or physical education class where we do this thing. I don't know if they still do it anymore, actually, but it was called the presidential physical fitness challenge. And it's basically like a battery of different like fitness assessments between like flexibility to sprinting to like pull-ups and then they had this one mile run component to it. And going into that, I didn't really, comprehend it i think i was in like i was, I had to been like 11 years old or something like that mm. and i didn't really comprehend that there was like a range of different types of athletes it's sort of just in my my mind it was like you're either good or you're not and then there's people in between but you you if you're good at a sprint you're probably also good at running for a long time and if mm. you're strong you're also fast and all these things you know that i was still learning at the time so that really was like the first time I really recognized that uh, amongst my peers at the time, you know, where my strengths and weaknesses actually were. And my strengths were definitely in that one mile run versus everything else that we did. So that kind of piqued my interest a little bit with that particular discipline. So when we got around to doing like track and field day type stuff in school, I started to kind of gravitate towards the longer stuff versus the shorter stuff pretty early on, even in middle school. Um, by the time I got into high school, uh, I was doing track and cross country were kind of my primary sports by my junior year. And by my senior year, I had... Jun a Sorry, Zach. Junior yeah. junior and senior. What, what's... Cause... I just give you guys some ages probably. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 So like high school in the United States is usually age range like 14 to 18. Okay. Um, okay. Middle schools considered like depending on where you're at, usually around like 10 to 13 and then earlier than that's considered elementary school. I see. So Great. middle school is kind of where I first was exposed to it. High school is where I kind of first got into it with any real dedication, mm. which would have been by my final year in high school. So I was like 17, 18 years old. Copy. And that last year, I, I had a coach who really kind of knew what he was doing in terms of running, training, and everything that went with it. So I sort of just did what I was told and – um you know, got out of it what I got out of it from that. Mm -hmm. And then it was in college, so uh, university, 
when I really started taking things seriously and started preparing year round with like actual objectives, actually trying to understand like why we were doing different workouts and, and really starting to kind of like mm. take the sport for what it is to me now, which is a, a big passion and, and now a career. So, um, one thing I kind of learned from my college experience was of all the workouts we would do from like short intervals on the track to tempo runs or long intervals and then long runs of races and everything like that. My favorite piece to that puzzle was always the long run we would do on Sunday. So yes. uh, that kind of led to just post collegiate uh, passions, which at the time I had no anticipation of ever turning running into a career. I was a school teacher for about five years. And during that time, I just really explored the different elements of the sport, like kind of at my own pace versus having a real structured periodized schedule. Mm. And that sort of led me to ultra marathons. I did my mm. first ultra marathon at the end of 2010 and I was pretty sold on it. I believe I was 24 at the time. So okay. a year after that, I did another one. And then from there on, it was basically ultra marathons as the primary focus. And, uh, you know, over the decade or so since then, the hundred mile distance has been one that's been really appealing to me and even maybe more specifically than that, like runnable courses. So nice. um, I don't, I like trails and I don't mind like climbing and descending courses, but I like the course to have a lot of running in it. That's kind of where my passion lies. So I tend to favor mm. the more runnable stuff. Yeah. There's an absolutely different modality the trails to the roads. Yeah. As I've yeah. gotten to it myself, it's the undulation and just the whole effects, the terrains, you have to keep your mind focused. You can't really lapse your attention otherwise you're going to fall over and eat dirt that's something yeah, i learned very quick I've done many times, yeah. yes yes i'm curious that you mentioned about when you started to get that coach around was it high school age around the 18 mark did you find that with that coaching and how like periodization and getting more structure and you know introducing track workouts speed workouts and then introducing long runs in the weekends how much that changed your mindset from like just a performance standpoint to actually being like oh wow like i'm just doing this thing how did you kind of like, did you feel that it was a big switch in your brain? Like, okay, this is something that could really like benefit me and it could take me further. Yeah, I would say at that point, like the big learning opportunity for me was he showed me why it was, it was okay to take the sport seriously, I guess. Mm -hmm. Whereas before it was kind of just like, I was better at that than the other stuff. So I wasn't even necessarily the one I would have maybe done had I been better at other sports, like some mm -hmm. of the team sports, like football, basketball, and that sort of stuff. Um, and when he kind of, he had like a huge passion for running. So like he was maybe one of the first adults I actually knew that was like very much like training and preparing for races on his own. Uh, and that was kind of interesting to me because it was sort of a bit of a highlight of what I was seeing coming up in my life, which was, you know, after school, like, what do you do in terms of like doing sports and things like that? Mm. It's like a lot more difficult to find yourself in a position where you have organized team sports unless you're a professional at it versus, you know, running is definitely something you can kind of create your own, do on your own join clubs and groups at a, like a, a higher rate and in, in, it's easier to find more or less. So like, he kind of got me interested in just like the world of running outside of the little bubble I was in, which was just like school cross okay. country and track and field. Okay. Um, yeah, it was my coach in college though, that I think really got me interested in the actual hows and whys to what we were doing. Okay. So my first coach in high school, he kind of showed me like, this is what you do. And then my coach in college sort of showed me, this is why we do what we do. 
Yeah, it's awesome. Very interesting. I like that. It's, it's the mental switch that fascinates me because sometimes it can just be that little singular moment, something a coach says or just the way that they are educating and the way they're informing what it is you do. I know for myself, that's kind of what happened for me. Not so much that I had a coach per se, but there was something that just flicked in my mind where we can actually take your body and the reasons as to why you want to take your body there. That's something that really changed for me. And that's another question I have too, is like you had the background, you got into the long distance, you had an affinity towards the longer runs. The big question, the why, what comes up in your mind when running a hundred miles? I think that's something for the lay person and they can't comprehend, you know, you're, you're looking at 10 plus hours on your feet, no sleep. A lot of people ask, oh, do you sleep? It's like, no, you don't sleep unless you're going into the 200 mile plus efforts where the mind goes. And when it comes to being in those real trenches of pain and suffering, like the whys that comes up, is that something that for you, Zach, is quite solidified or is it something that you kind of, you just let it be? You like running, you just leave it at that because that's something that people always don't really understand. And I'm curious where you find, what, what you find in that, your why. Yeah, it's a great question. Mm. I think I probably have more more than one or I've had other things like certain whys kind of introduce themselves and come and go throughout my running career. But the one that's sort of always been there that I sort of would consider kind of the bedrock of why I keep doing what I'm doing and why I will continue to keep doing what I'm doing um, for some mm. time is just like it's kind of exploring the limitations that uh, that I that I either put on myself or that I perceive or others perceive and just kind of see where those are at. So, mm. you know, there's the actual act of going to a race course and executing and finding like, yes, I was able to push through that dark patch better than I was in the past. And therefore I arrived at the finish line sooner, mm. or I discovered a new nutritional protocol that worked better for me on race day, that gave me more like level energies and things like that. Those are all cool aspects, but then also like just the, the, the more like, day-to-day side of things with it too where like there's this whole puzzle you kind of put together before you even you know begin the training plan for the race itself where you sort of build a scaffolding around like this is what i'm going to do here and then i'm going to transition to this and then going through that process and watching that kind of development take place has always been something that's really been intriguing to me so much so that even you know, if I've had some really fun training blocks that didn't result in a very good race result but i still am very happy that i did it because I was able to kind of go through those paces through the four, five, six months leading into that race that are enjoyable to me and that likely pay forward for future races mm. and things like that too. So as long as I enjoy that process that kind of goes into the race, ultimately, that's kind of what keeps me around more or less. Mm. So uh, what I'm hearing is you're more so process oriented, not really outcome oriented. So as long as you're building that word you use, scaffolding, and you're in that process of building that to reinforce the structure within the scaffolding, you're content. But if the outcome isn't necessarily what you expect, you're st- you're more or less at peace. Is that yeah, the, out- the, the outcome I look at is just kind of another piece of the learning, mm. the learning phase where, like, obviously, if I'm getting the same outcome over and over again, uh, then if I want that outcome to change, I likely need to alter the process. Yes. So the outcome can, especially when you you – any one outcome is perhaps not as meaningful, but when you start having many outcomes stacked up together, you can sort of like tease out a little bit better, at least at the individual level, like what is working and what isn't working and really kind of fine tune that next piece. So I definitely like the outcome side of it too, because mm-hmm. it sort of does have that 
it was kind of like the test at the end of the semester, so to speak, yeah, where, yeah, yeah. you know, like, if you, <laughs> if you did things right, chances are you, you're not going to do too bad on it. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. if they have a bunch of bad races in a row, there's probably reason to, to think that the, the process needs some altering, or things are heading in the right direction, then, you know, you might just be looking at minor tweaks and things like that. So, yes. uh, they're both interesting to me, but yeah, I think uh, the process is definitely the one that I, I fixate on the most. Yeah, it stands out. So, also something that I that came up to me when you're mentioning that is when you have a periodization and a training block real specific to a race and you kind of stick to that out to multiple different races and then one outcome in terms of the race outcome being positive you got your desired results and then you follow that exact same plan for the second race and then it doesn't really meet what it is that you wanted bar injury, injury not included, but just p- purely performance, that the idea of expectations, how much that plays in your mind in that process, because you've obviously got your framework, it's not working. How do you, is it just kind of a matter of just assessing your training plan like minor, like minor tweaks, or is it readdressing the whole approach and trying something new? I'm basically trying to ask, like in terms of a formula, is there so much a fixed formula you follow and how do you kind of avoid that idea of having the expectations and then that not being met? How do you kind of overcome that and just continue on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think in terms of like a formula, I look at it where early on I probably had a lot more like reasons and opportunities to do bigger overhauls because I was very much still learning, as a lot of us were and still are to some degree Mm. what is the best way to prepare for something like a hundred mile race where there's going to be variables included that are independent to some degree from the actual training approach itself but generally speaking like at this point in my career i think i have like a solid of like kind of overall philosophy that Mm. it's not going to be usually major overhauls it may just be kind of some some minor shuffling around and and maybe a little bit order of operation type things. But generally speaking, um, if I'm relatively fit from a foundational standpoint, so like usually what I use to assess that is like what is my pace or velocity at like my aerobic threshold. Uh, if that's in a good spot to start the process, then I'm going to start working on things that are least specific but important mm. first and maybe address some weaknesses depending on what those may be. And that's usually going to be dependent on the course. So like if I'm doing a track ultra marathon versus, you know, something like the Western States 100 or the San Diego 100 that have much larger trail, some technical component to it, you know, like the weakness part may be different for those. So I'm I'm maybe going to like say do a little more hill work early on in a training plan for something that's more trail based versus uh, stick into the flats for something that's on a track. Um, but yeah, like, you know, least specific to most specific is uh, going to be an order of operations thing mm. when it comes to racing, because it just depends on what race you're doing. If you're doing a of 5K, course. order of operations is likely going to be like, you know, a little bit heavier on short intervals near the end, because that's going to be the intensity that you're likely going to be producing during a race of that yes. distance or that duration versus something like a hundred miler, where, like you said, you could be out there all day long. The intensity is going to be quite low relative to what you could do on some of these shorter Olympic distance type mm. events. Mm. So for the framework, I'm using, I'm working least specific to most specific, but it maybe looks a little backwards compared to what you would see in like a traditional training plan for a shorter distance race, where I might start out with like shorter intervals that are kind of pinned to a red round like where VO2 max would be. Then I'm going to transition towards things that are a little more long interval based uh, that are going to be pinned closer to where like your lactate threshold would be. 
And then ultimately in the back end of the plan, I'm going to start kind of phasing out most of the speed work and just moving more of my training load into developing my long run or my long slow pace that I'm going to actually be using on race day. And then when possible, I'm also going to be trying to do that in the environment in which I'm going to race. So mm. if I'm doing like a track ultra, like the one I did where I ran 11 hours and 19 minutes, I'm going to try to do a lot of those long runs on a track. So I'm really kind of dialing the mechanics, the visuals, yeah. the process, yeah. the strategy and everything in the environment that I'll actually be performing versus one of these trail races. I'm going to try to get out on terrain. That's going to is mimic as close as possible, that type of terrain. So I'm able to kind of develop that, race specific intensity around the environment i'll actually be in it and weather had plays a role in that too when you can mm. control it so mm. you know some races are hot which require a little bit of a different strategy from hydrating to like cooling protocols and things like that and then just general heat adaptation so um mm. these are all things i'm kind of looking at when it's like kind of building that program around whatever race i decide to to target yeah intuitively it makes a lot of sense kind of least least specific at the beginning and then as you're tailing to the actual race day more race specific you you mentioned a couple of words just for those listening some people might not understand like aerobic threshold uh, lactal threshold you know can you explain those briefly like as to what that yeah. actually means yeah so for folks that aren't runners they can probably understand intensity a lot better than they can those words yes. so like i look at like essentially if you if you think of it like there's like an easy effort like a moderate effort and then there's hard effort and those are all on a spectrum so and they all are in ranges so it's not just like one pace is easy one pace is moderate one pace is hard there's a window with each of these so i look at the kind of aerobic threshold as like the line that goes between your easy intensity and your moderate intensity and you know that's a pace that you should be able to kind of tolerate for a very long period of time you should be able to carry like a conversation while you're doing it um, it shouldn't feel all that stressful. You should feel like you could do it for, for hours essentially. So for some people who've never run before or are very new to that sport or have done traditionally a lot of strength sports, not a lot of endurance sports that might be walking. Um, for someone like myself, who's been running for you know a couple decades plus, you know, that pace can sometimes be the low six minute per mile pace when I'm getting up to aerobic threshold. So it's going to be very individual to the person, but the intensity is going to mirror one another, whether it's someone who's new and is doing that effort at like a walking mm. pace versus someone who's a little more experienced and is going to be maybe running quite fast at that effort. Um, then uh, if you look at like the lactate threshold, I put that as like an intensity at which you could sustain for about 60 minutes in a race day setting. So if you decided I'm going to see how far I can go in 60 minutes and then get to that 60 minutes feeling like I'm pretty exhausted, like I couldn't go further or at least my mind says I couldn't go a lot further. That's the intensity you're going to try to target for that sort of stuff. So when I'm doing like long intervals, I'm usually trying to hit that intensity for shorter periods of time than that 60 minutes. And then you have like the VO2 max, uh, which is what I'm going to do like short intervals with. And that's going to be an intensity that you can sustain for roughly 12 to 15 minutes in a race day setting. So kind of same idea, but for 12 to 15 minutes, where if you were to see how far you could travel, um, in that 12 to 15 minutes, when you get to the end of it, you feel pretty, pretty spent. That's the intensity I'm going to pin some of my short intervals to. So then it's like, then just looking at with those, those like intensities, like where do they fit within the plan? So for me, you know, those shorter, faster things tend to be a little earlier since they're not very specific to the pace I'm going to be doing on race day, whereas those slower, easier paces are. So I'm going to put a lot more of that kind of near the end of the plan. Mm, yeah that makes it all intuitively makes sense when you explain it like this say eh? so 
something that comes up for me is um, you mentioned it briefly. I just oh, I just realized I forgot to press the record button. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's all right. Okay. Well, at least I got my phone back up. That that's good audio. Oh no, I'm still learning this Zoom game. <laughs> I've been there before. I've lost full interviews before, unfortunately. Oh no, that's it right. well, I'll, I'll be able to forage the 22 minutes that we've had for the rest. <laughs> um, so you mentioned when I asked a question about kind of your why, you said that there's that component to really finding out and exploring as to what it is that you're capable of. You know, for that. In, in simple terms, you really want to see what you can do and what you can achieve. I'm curious how you can kind of extend it out into life, just daily life, outside of running, you know, being a um, being a partner, being a businessman, whatever it is that anyone is endeavoring to do, how you find that, that kind of mentality, that approach can transition into just daily life and, you know, enduring. And when it comes to days that are quite miserable, painful, or days that are like elated, how do you kind of relate that and correlate that? And what is mm-hmm. what's the process like in that, through that? Yeah, I like this question because I think I can look at it from kind of a, both a macro and a micro lens to some degree where like at the macro side of things, it is like, if I just reflect on my experience where you know, the very first time I ran a mile, you know, I ran, I think it was like somewhere in the like mid to low seven minute range. And then like within a year, I was fighting to try to break six minutes where when I finished that first mile, like the idea of running under six minutes for a mile was probably just way outside the realm of possibility. And I would have never guessed it would happen, uh, much less even consider it at that point in time. Uh, and then you look at like another example, you have all these like examples like this throughout your career too. I remember when I talked to my, my university cross country coach before joining the team, he was just explaining to me just kind of the protocol of what, what the athletes would do in training. And he was a very high volume, like philosophy type coach. Whereas coming out of high school, I was very low volume compared to a lot of my peers. So he was telling me about how the juniors and seniors are sometimes running 90 to hundred miles in a week during the summer training And I remember thinking when he told me that there's no way I'm ever going to run 90 miles in a week. So like I built this, this wall or this like expectation that was unachievable in my mind, which was clearly not the reality because, you know, now I'm doing that in a day sometimes. (laughs) So like you have those like things that kind of stick in your head at the moment of like these barriers that you place. Mm -hmm. And then when you exceed them and sometimes you exceed them in, in a rather large manner, you have to ask yourself, like, what other barriers am I placing on myself in other areas of life? Is Am I placing those same sort of barriers in my career, my business, in, you know, relationships and things like that? And, and the answer is likely yes, to some degree. It really just depends on how involved and how much time and passion you put into it. And I think the more time, patience, consistency, and passion you're going to put into something, the further out that kind of limit or that end point of where you can actually get to gets from where you originally perceived it. So having that experience with running has definitely kind of shined that light on other areas where when I decide like to focus or engage with another area of my life, I have to look at it through that lens of like, well, if my expectation is here and I'm new at this, where can it actually go and not kind of block yourself off or put these artificial limits there early on? Um, But that's not to say that it's not good to kind of like give yourself manageable benchmarks within a time, like within a certain phase of that buildup. Like had I decided to start running hundred milers the day after my coach told me that, like, I likely wouldn't be here talking to you right now. So there is like, I think some, some beauty in that as well 
if as long as you kind of keep persevering from kind of like the more micro side of things though i think it's just like it's just such a great lesson when you 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 have that kind of scaffolding i talked about or that program i took about and you say okay this is the plan this is what i'm going to execute and here are the small things that i need to do consistently throughout that that will end up piling up and together will create the outcome i'm looking for you can do that with literally everything if i'm working on a project that i need to be done have done in like 4 months i can scaffold it down to where it's like this is what i want this is the end product i want but what do I need to do between now and then on the day to day in order for that to be manageable? Because it's very easy to look at those end goals and get a little overwhelmed by it and then maybe not start because that end goal is so big or that end project is so detailed. But when you think about it, just like it's really just a combination of small things that I can easily manage every day that pile up to that. And I think one of my first experiences in life where I started kind of like adjusting that framework was actually when I was at university, I was, we would get these syllabuses at the beginning of the semester and uh, it would basically outline everything we we're going to do that semester. And it was easy to look at that syllabus and be like, how am I going to find time to do this? Plus, you know, the same thing with four or five other classes. But when you really look at it, like, okay, well, we have from say September to December to do this, I need to just break this down and uh, you know, do it on a, in a more consistent, timely manner versus trying to bite off the entire thing early on uh, or wait to the last minute, which is what oftentimes happens at university, I think. Uh, that's that's where you kind of learn how that process actually works and how it actually yields better results when you kind of plan it out that way. Mm, mm, yeah, that's really informative. But something that I've been exploring specific to my training plan, uh, it's actually the one that I won in that raffle about two years ago through you. We randomly <laughs> messaged me like, oh, hey, Stefan, you've won the raffle. I'm like, oh, okay. So I've actually been, yeah, following that plan kind of with a similar approach. And the reason I ask is because I've started to uh, realize that it's one thing to do this, this running thing. And then it's another thing to be able to translate the lessons and the principles that you're acquiring from this plan and implementing in other areas of my life. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sensing a similar similar feeling when I'm going through it, navigating my life. And I think that's the biggest thing about, about this journey for everyone is, you know, well, it's, we've kind of got no real framework, but we've got like micro frameworks and different areas that we find and want to pursue. So how can we kind of put that in the macro scope of life? And I think it's, uh, if you do it right, or if you do it with prudence and consistency, I think it can be translated to every aspect of life, but obviously it's the work and it's the patience and the consistency that is required. Yeah. yeah. I think it's probably the most value in like at an early age, finding something that you're passionate about, regardless of what it is, because running isn't like this unique compass for that thing. It's like, that's that same kind of process is available in anything. So even if it's something completely meaningless in terms of your outcome to life and from a career standpoint, learning that lesson can help you, you know, put that framework down in other areas. Yeah, I agree. One question I have is, and I think a lot of people are wondering, is where does your mind go when you're running <laughs> miles? Like what? what yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I think like it, it depends a little bit on the event. So like these track ultras are unique in the sense that they're usually on like roughly a 400 meter loop. So you're in a situation where you go around the first couple minutes and you've already seen the entire course. So you have that situation where like, yeah, there's no like 
extra hurdles or things you have to get over. It's you're literally just pure running one foot in front of the other in the exact same way over and over again, which can be nice from a predictability standpoint, mm-hmm. um, but also can be very monotonous. And then I think you have to be a little more cognizant about what you're actually doing with your mind. So I think the thing you want to avoid is thinking too far ahead uh, it just ends up giving your brain like so much to process that I think you burn up so much mental energy. Then by the time you get to the, the, the end stages of the race itself, you've sort of like spent all that mental currency and you don't have anything left to give from a motivation standpoint. So I think you have to kind of be a little simple with your mind and pick small benchmarks and then try to think about things that are semi unrelated to the race, or if they're related to the race, they're somewhat indirectly like, thinking about just like the process that you went through to get there. And I like that one a lot, just because when you kind of actually add up the amount of time and energy you spend in the months leading into a race, it really does minimize what you're doing on race day. So rather than this hundred mile race being this big thing, that's really difficult to wrap your head around. It becomes this small piece to what actually is a big process. And I think that helps kind of calm my mind. So usually it's just kind of like your mind is like battling between thinking positively or distracting yourself from thinking negatively. And you just get better. I think at recognizing what those negative voices are going to sound like and being aware of what they actually mean when they do come. And it makes it easier to kind of work around them. So I'm oftentimes thinking of like different point parts during training. I've gotten much better at this too, where now when I'm actually training, I'm sort of taking some mental inventory, like, with specific workouts or certain experiences that I have in, in the time leading into the race during training. So that during the race itself, I have like some more concrete things to think about or to consider or to reflect on to sort of pass the time. Um, then there's other things you can do that are a little more mind numbing, I guess, where like you, maybe you put on some music intermittently or, uh, even sometimes listen to a podcast or something like that. So you're sort of like distracted from the task at hand. It's just so much different because the, the attrition in a hundred mile race is slow and gradual. Whereas the attrition in like a more traditional endurance event is pretty front and center where like you make a mistake in say a 5k, you sort of just like move, move right on and then deal with it in a few minutes. Whereas in a hundred miler, like you make a mistake, you can sit there and fixate on it because you have hours sometimes to think about that mistake. And it becomes something where you need to like, refocus your mind on what's ahead versus what you did. Cause inevitably there's going to be things that happen that you weren't, weren't necessarily expecting when you're out there for that long. And when those things happen, you need to be picking the best path forward versus uh, fixating and letting your head kind of get, get uh, messed up by, by the the mistake or the uncertainty that occurred. You have a thought of running on a track, a 400 meter track for 11 hours, just almost yeah. the anxiety. Cause I, well, I, I do a the lot funny of thing. The funny thing about it too, is just like, you don't really come out of it with this, like long, you would think that you'd have this like book length level description of what you thought about during those like 12 hours or whatever <laughs> it happens to be. But when you finish them, you're basically, you remember maybe like a handful of things that stuck out or maybe were on repeat in your head a bunch. And that's why they're still there. Uh, there's a lot of it is just sort of like, feels like it was just, you know, like kind of a meaningless passage of time with like maybe a half an hour worth of actual content. (laughs) 
Yeah, because I do a lot of track uh, repeats. Well, I did in my training block yeah. at the beginning. And even when I do the 5, 10Ks around the track, I'm like, wow, it, it takes a real kind of, you almost need a, yeah, I think the way you said that, don't think about ahead. I know it's only 10K relative to 100 miles, but I, that is definitely, yeah, I, whenever I think about a 5K or a 10K uh, track workout, I never every time I think about the end is what makes it so much harder. Whereas when I break it down as a lap, I do it lap by lap. It definitely seems to make it more digestible. I'm literally eating away at this big piece of pizza, just bite by bite. And mm. that's something that I've really worked towards. And I think, again, you can translate that to life that when you have an audacious task ahead, like starting a business or starting a family, it's like, well, how do I do it? How am I going to afford it? Is it going to work out? Where it's like, well, first of all, you've got to, you're, do you love the woman? Do you love your partner? Okay, cool. Then from there, like next step, next step, next step. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. money coming in. Okay, next step, next step. And you build that kind of framework, build that, build that beast, build that sculpture, so to say. But it starts with that first chisel. And I love that idea. It's a, it's spoken a lot about in um, Buddhism, you know, that idea mm. of the little brick, the little layer by layer by layer by layer. And it doesn't necessarily change how you're going to approach it but it's just being patience and having the perseverance to build slowly 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 Mm -hmm. yeah right on Mm. with um so with with that uh, on the buddhism note when it comes to the mind is there any kind of practice or approach spiritual practice that you delve into in these processes or leading up to a race or during a race do you have any practice that you delve in yeah i think like the the most I really do at this point in time that is like that really has resonated with me as like this is something I need to like really consider and think about along with the actual like physiological adaptations that are occurring for like a given workout is just like using some of those workouts to remind myself of what the brain is going to do during the race itself. And then in some cases, like specifically with the long runs, especially the ones that are like kind of closest to the race itself, like visualize what you're actually going to be doing out there. So like, I got a couple examples, like when I'm doing, like say short intervals, those are, they're short, hard, intense. Um, they tend to be the ones where like you dread them a little bit more going in and they feel quite good when you finish, uh, inevitably I'll get maybe like, let's say I'm doing 10 of those. I'll get like maybe three in and I'll be starting to kind of second guess whether I should be doing 10, like almost every time. And then you're like, okay, well, let's just do four and five and see where we're at. Let's not make any like, like, like strict decisions yet. So then you get halfway there and then you're like, okay, I think I can do a couple more. Let's just see if we can get to eight. You get to eight and they're like, well, why wouldn't I just do the last two? And then you finish the last two and you realize, oh, I could have done two more if I'd had to, which is where you want to be. I think you want to leave a couple in the tank. But that process of kind of biting off a manageable amount that you can get to, like those first three, then to five, then to eight, then those final two, is exactly what you want to be doing in a race. So your brain is behaving in the same way, just in a very kind of concentrated environment with those shorter, faster intervals. But you want to kind of use the same tactics to kind of override that thought process of stopping at three, stopping at five, stopping at eight. Um, The one that's maybe a little more specific is like, let's say I'm doing a long run, uh, like three to four hours, maybe 30 miles or so, something like that. It's if I'm doing something like that, 
I usually like to like, when I start that run, just imagine like I'm at mile 70 of this hundred mile race. I'm just going to visualize what it will be like to run those last 30 miles. And if I do those like half a dozen, if I do that, like a half a dozen times in my final long runs leading up to the race itself, when I get to that point in the race, it's no longer this like, oh, I'm 70 miles in my legs and I've got to go 30 more. How am I going to do this? I just load up that, all those dress rehearsals of like what I want to experience with that final 30 miles and just kind of treat it like another long run. Uh, and that really helps kind of minimize the, the high, the, you know, the, the gravity of running a hundred miles or whatever distance it happens to be. Fascinating. So is that why in the training block, I've noticed the one, the one that you're giving me specifically, it's the last, uh, I think that I'm in my last two weeks. I'm doing Tarawera, by the way. That's in, Oh, nice. Yeah. February 11th. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's now oh, it's about a month, less than a month away that those last four weeks before the taper, that you have those back-to-back days, is it kind of emulating that similar approach, what you're saying, running on tired legs, kind of mm-hmm. envisioning what it's like to run on tired legs and knowing that there's this back-to-back day ahead. It's kind of that mental slaughter. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you're working on a few things with those. I think you're, first of all, I, I like the back-to-back long runs uh, within reason because it's like you get a – really large training load in two days, but it's broken up. So it's not going to be as stressful and require as much recovery as if you were to say, do both those back-to-back long runs consecutively. Uh, and then, yeah, like that second one, you're going to have some residual fatigue from that first long run and perhaps some of the training early in the week. So you sort of get a practice, just the mindset of like that your body can move quite well when it's tired, when it's a little more sore and fatigued than it would be on an optimal situation. Um, and then like what we were just talking about just kind of gives you that opportunity to kind of practice how you visualize those uh, paces during the race itself. When you're a little tired, you've got a little bit of a long ways to go and to kind of center that. So I think it pays, it pays forward in a few different ways. Mm, Great. That's very interesting. Uh, You, you touched on something um, earlier about your um, nutrition and that's something I really want to get into because I think that's, that's what part of what put me um, put you on my radar is this higher fat, lower carb approach. And this is something that's becoming more prevalent in the endurance sports, the whole, you know, that whole scope. Now people seem to approach it more now. It's coming more common um, versus what, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but you got a carb load before <laughs> constantly getting your sugar, constantly um, replenishing the glycogen every 20 minutes, have that gel, have that gel, have that gel. And then you came in from the approach. This was about 10 years ago from memory. And this was not as common and not as well known. So firstly, how did you even have the intuition and the awareness to know that there was something wrong, first of all, and then to go into that approach with not much research at that time? How did you first begin that process? Yeah. So, I mean, I probably got a little lucky just from a timing standpoint. I, I, I was noticing that the approach I was carrying was somewhat unsustainable, or at least I perceived it to be unsustainable. Uh, when I kind of first started running ultra marathons in, in a, like a kind of focused manner where that was like the goal races I was going to do. And I did like a series of 350 milers at the end of 2011. And between the training preparation for it, the races themselves and everything after I just thought like, if I just, my mind was thinking like, if I just keep doing this over and over again, I just feel like it's gonna, it's not going to end the way I want it to. So, um, everything from just like 
the energy swings during the day, um, sleep patterns at night, digestion. I didn't have like massive digestive issues during the race itself, but I had only been doing 50 milers at that time. So, um, or 80 kilometers roughly. So it was like this thing where I was just starting to thinking, well, if I want to get to a hundred miles someday, I'm going to have to change something because this isn't going to work. Like I'm not going to be able to double down on what I did for 50 awesome. miles and have that. Sorry, Zach, what was from the nutritional, what was it at that time that you're doing to kind of, yeah, it was pretty, yeah. pretty typical kind of moderate to high carbohydrate endurance protocol. I wasn't eating like a lot of junk food or anything like that, but it was like, um, mostly carbohydrates, probably like 60 to 70% in that range. A lot of like grains, fruits, vegetables, that sort of stuff. And then, you know, probably a pretty even split between fat and protein with the remainder. Um, so, yeah. I mean, most people would have looked at it and, and suggested it was a pretty, pretty clean, ideal way to do it. And I mean, it worked for me in college as far as I can tell. So I didn't really have any reason to doubt it at that time. It really wasn't until I started doing these ultra marathons and in possibly, I mean, there was a lot of variables to maybe consider. I was also, you know, teaching full-time at the, at the moment as well. So there was a lot going on. Um, but it, it, so it felt unsustainable, but at the same time, it wasn't like painstakingly unsustainable in the way that like, uh, I felt like I couldn't manage in the short term. So like I enjoyed the runs and the workouts in the morning. It was kind of like the rest of the time managing the stuff after that and trying to get myself ready. So I felt good. The next one that felt that would be unsustainable if I repeated it over and over again, over years, mm -hmm. um, in that kind of similar time frame, I actually started listening to podcasts during some of my runs just because I was starting to feel a little guilty about the amount of volume I was spending running and <laughs> figured like I may as well learn something while I'm out here on these like these slower runs during the week before work and things like that or on the weekends for long runs. And I came across some some stuff with uh, Dr. Jeff Volick and Stephen Finney and kind of their approach to uh, a little bit more of a strict ketogenic diet and where maybe there was some application with that with endurance cyclists. So it got, I got a little intrigued with it. Uh, I was fortunate also, I spoke with a few other people who were kind of in that world a little bit over the next couple of years, and then kind of just started turning myself into a bit of an end of one experiment based on just things that, you know, guys like Dr. Volick and Dr. Finney suggested, and then taking kind of the, my own personal lifestyle into account. So I started with like an off season where I was pretty strict. I was basically following a strict ketogenic diet for about four weeks. And then, um, when I started, uh, putting the structure back into my training, I sort of noticed that that was working well for all of the stuff that I was trying to kind of clear up between like sleeping patterns, even energy levels during the day and feeling, feeling good on kind of like longer, slower efforts or shorter, slower efforts for that matter. But when it came to kind of introducing some of those like short intervals, long intervals and things in the moderate and high intensity realm, I did feel like there was like something left on the table with that approach. So I started bringing back some of the carbohydrate, but much less than what I had done historically. So it kind of moved me from like kind of that strict ketogenic diet framework into what would be considered like a low carbohydrate diet framework. And that seemed to work quite well for me. It gave me um, the ability to feel like I could hit those higher intensity workouts, moderate intensity workouts when I needed to, but also still, uh, kind of have the other things that came along with, uh, switching to kind of the ketogenic diet. Um, so it's just, it probably took me about a year and a half, maybe two years to really fine tune 
exactly what I wanted to eat when and where throughout the different phases of training. Uh, And at that point, it was uh, pretty clear to me what was going to work for me. And then it just became just like the curiosity now is like what makes up those macronutrient ratios as much as anything, because I sort of have that part of it dialed in for me. Mm. And I imagine that in, say, a race season that throughout throughout your year, the the eating you'd have, say, pre-race or post-race versus like like a whole recovery phase where you're kind of not really focusing on a race, your diet would probably look very different. Is, Is that fair to say? Would that be the case? Yeah, when I'm in like an off season, my carbohydrates are at the lowest, at least from like a percentage gram standpoint. Um, and then when I r- ramp into training, I'll bring them up a little bit. So yeah, it's it usually it's like off season, it's a little closer to a strict ketogenic diet, base building, or like kind of like just like the early stages of training. I'll bring them up a little bit, but not by a ton. Okay. Um, maybe like a 10, 15% of my intake somewhere in that neighborhood. Short intervals and long interval phases of training tends to be when they're at their highest. So then I might have them up closer to say like 20% during specific times when I'm kind of asking my body to do a little more uh, glycolytic type activities. Mm -hmm. Then when I go back kind of to the longer run development and bring intensity down, volume is usually quite high at that point. So I tend to eat more grams of carbohydrate than I would during the off season just to account for like sometimes the two to three time increase in resting metabolic rate. Uh, but from a percentage standpoint, it starts to kind of come a little bit back down, you know, closer to that 10, maybe 15% range. Uh, and that kind of puts me in a really good position, I think on race day to be able to take in just smaller amounts of carbohydrate throughout the day and still defend muscle glycogen. So I feel like I avoid the digestive, uh, ramifications of consuming carbohydrate. Cause I'm just not eating enough of them to really get myself into a position where it's all that problematic. Um, it's not bulletproof, but it's much closer to it. <laughs> so, um, for me anyway, so that kind of puts me in a better way where I don't have to like deal with maybe the logistics of trying to target some of those higher ranges of carbohydrate per hour, and then deal with some of the gastrointestinal issues that can sometimes come along for the ride when you're kind of doing that sort of a strategy. What's, what's the race nutrition look like on, on day, on the day of a race, what would it be like, what, like from like specific in a way as specific as you can be what would it look like yeah i'll usually do a combination of like sports product and solid foods for something like a hundred miler just because i think there's the lower intensity makes it a little more uh applicable to have a variety of different stuff and digestively it's likely going to be easier in a digestive system to include some solid products so i'll use a product called s feels race plus for um about half of my intake. And that's just a powder I'll mix in with my water. Mm. Um, S feels makes like a low carbohydrate product line, but it's based on both performance and lifestyle. So they have like, it basically follows the protocol I do where carbs are low, but they're not non-existent. So they know they need to have some application there for like races and big workouts and things like that. So their carbohydrate based product is race plus. So I'll, I'll do probably about half of my intake from that. And the other half from some solid options, which I'm usually trying to find something that is, uh, polarizing in terms of texture, flavor. Um, so something that's a little more crunchy, salty, savory. So give me something as simple as like a pretzel or a salty cracker. Uh, it gives me kind of, again, 
the carbohydrate is what I'm trying to defend on race day. I'm not going to exhaust my fat stores on race day. I could exhaust my glycogen stores, my liver glycogen and muscle glycogen or not exhaust them, but, you know, dip them low enough where performance gets compromised. So for me, like for a hundred mile race, I'm usually hitting a right around 40 grams per hour is a good target to kind of put me in a position where I'm not going to have a digestive issue, but I'm also going to, um, defend muscle liver glycogen enough where I can, if I'm having a good race, I can feel strong at the end versus feel like I'm hanging on by a thread. And you take in exogenous ketones or fats during that race or because you've got such a um, reservoir of fat, you're not taking in as much. So, for example, like avocado or like, say, coconut oil or like actual high fat products per se or not. Nah, it's not really something you because you've got enough in your body. Yeah, so you have enough in your body to account for that. I mean, there's other things that are going on that can potentially like make that sort of a thing like a viable option. I think you want your foundation to be in carbohydrate on race day. Cause that is the thing that, you know, is time sensitive, but it, even if you look at like the S fields race plus product that I use, there is a few grams of fat and a few grams of protein. And that fat is going to be like, um, like an NMCT oil base, uh, coconut base type, um, option. And I think that's just going to like ease digestion a little bit to have those like few grams of fat and protein in there. Uh, when you take in like that straight carbohydrate source, a lot of times that's almost like so fast that you run the risk. If you overshoot it, you could potentially have a situation where your body starts pulling fluid into your digestive tract to try to accommodate that. Whereas when you have, I think some solid food and a little bit of fat and protein along with your carbohydrate, just to slow that down a little bit. Um, so I find that useful and you're not really looking for that quick punch of energy the way you would in like, say a shorter endurance race. So you just don't need it to be acting quite as fast. Uh, so I do have a little bit in there, but it's not like the foundation of what I'm taking in day of after the race and the days following lots of fat, and lots of protein. <laughs> so basically the opposite. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to say, I imagine in the recovery phase, that's where you'd probably like almost have carbs, non-existent, but just go protein fat. Mm. What, what does that look like? Is that just like steak and like eggs and avocado and a bit of vegetable yeah. kind of what it looks like. Yeah. It's usually, you know, after a race, um, you know, your digestive system is just a little wonky in general. I mean, I think there's actually some research that would suggest that your gut microbiome shifts just from the act of doing the race itself. It's, they actually, I don't know what the results have come out or if they're coming out at any time soon, but I think they did a study on this at Western States this last year where they actually had a control group um, of people who were taking in the race fuel and not running and then people taking in the race fuel and running. So they could kind of have this idea of like what it, we know the microbiome shifts after these events. The question is, is it the event or is it the nutrition that's causing it to do that? Or is it some combination of both? So after the race, it's like, you just don't feel quite normal. And for me, that usually means eating things that are just going to be a little easier on my digestive system. So like, you know, fatty cuts of meat, like you described eggs, avocados tend to be what do well. I don't do usually a ton of fiber and a ton of carbs or sugar for the last few days after I might bring some of that back. Um, by the third or fourth day, when things have sort of balanced out, I'm rehydrated hormones are somewhat balanced, caught back up on sleep and things like that. But yeah, generally speaking, like very high calorie, low volume fats and proteins are kind of the target thing for me for the couple days after yeah fascinating yeah for those listening it's 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 very scientific and i guess it has to be to be performing at this level that you are so again, yeah translate this to kind of 
life in general. You gotta if you're gonna be um, pursuing something very thoroughly and very cutely and focused, you gotta be thorough. You gotta be scientific, and I find it damn intriguing. And with the just not to be, go around the bush too much, I don't want to hammer this dead horse. But one more thing, when it comes to the carbohydrates not being too prevalent in those. A uh, few days after the race, is that coming from an inflammatory standpoint too? Because you don't really want to run the risk of increasing that chance, or is that purely just because you're wanting to get more protein, get more fat, and just so your body can kind of stabilize and regulate itself? Is there like real reason as to why? Because that's something I've heard often that people tend to almost make carbs non-existent for a few days, a couple of days after the race, and then introduce it. Is your reasoning because it's an inflammation standpoint or is that just what works for you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like maybe some some promising anecdotal reasons to believe that is potentially some inflammation related stuff, but I'm not quite certain that that's like how true that is. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of like folks that will do these races and kind of do a protocol I do and feel like they have a lot more range of motion, less like kind of swelling tightness and um, kind of just you know, general aches and pains following the race itself. So whether that's being driven by the lack of carbohydrate or the fact that they're following something like that's pretty calculated versus like what you would imagine someone would do after a hundred mile, which is like, go straight to the buffet and eat everything in sight, drink a bunch of alcohol. Yeah. Go completely <laughs> off the wagon. So it's like, it's kind of, it's one of those things where it's like, maybe it's just like, like, I guess the question would be like, what if someone did the opposite of what I'm doing, but it was all like relatively like quote unquote healthy food. So like, like whole food, fruit, vegetable, relatively high carb, that sort of thing. Like maybe they have the same experience because they're not kind of going off the rails, so to speak. Um, but for me, I think the big thing is, uh, or the, the, where I tend to couch it in terms of the reason is I just don't have a great need for carbohydrate the day after a race like that. I mean, I just did a low intensity race all day long. My fat oxidation rates are probably off the charts. So, um, I'm burning high amounts of fat. It's an off season time frame, So I'm going to be kind of doing that anyway. And it's just a great opportunity to leverage fat oxidation. Um, because you don't have that, you don't need that carbohydrate. It's sort of like a, uh, it, it's like, it, the way to think about it is like, it's like maybe like taking the sports car out when all you need to do is kind of like drive to the grocery store, <laughs> kind of a mindset. It's like, I don't really need the fast acting fuel source to sit on the couch for two days. Yeah, 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 it's true. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, I guess that'll do it for the fuel. I find it, yeah, it's so intriguing and it's something I've delved into the last, since I've got into my ultra marathons, I did my first proper ultra last year it was those backyard relay, the Les, the Les, Lazarus. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 I did that. And um, at the time I was following, like, I was doing the 75 hard challenge actually, Zach, at the mm -hmm. time. And part of that protocol was having a specific um, diet and mine was strict carnivore slash animal based. And during that race, I was so fixated on that, that I didn't even take in uh, carbohydrate source from I'm talking I wasn't even really eating much fruit like those there's these types of balls you get in New Zealand they're called like foosballs they're basically filled with dates and chocolate and all whole foods but they're carbohydrate rich but I was so fixated that I was like no I'm not going to have that I'm not going to have any sourdough or any <laughs> like nice good carbohydrates that are good and it made it cr I crashed I crashed I, I managed to achieve uh, 18 laps but 
I swear that the reason I failed was what you just said is that I was so deplete in the carbohydrate standpoint because I was naive at this point that that's why I folded. But this year, as I'm approaching Tarawera, I'm being much more accurate and clinical with when I take in my carbohydrates. And I swear it's it's paying dividends, especially from a recovery standpoint that I come home after a run, I'll just be very strict. You could almost say carnivore. And then the next day I'm like, oh, the body actually doesn't feel too bad. So it's, mm -hmm. it's been a real fascinating journey. So it's cool to hear this kind of anecdotal, what you're sharing with us. So yeah, thank you. Um, one thing, I, uh, how, how much time do you have, Zach, by the way? Because I've got a few more questions. I don't want to, but I don't want to hold you up too much longer. Yeah, we can do a couple more. Yeah, awesome. Um, I want to quickly talk about the race across America for, for and it's that um, you're fundraising for the Fight for the Forgotten, Justin Wren's organization, which in itself is amazing. For those listening that don't know, if you could actually explain Fight for the Forgotten firstly, Zach, that would be great for the listeners. Yeah, so Fight for the Forgotten is an organization that, like you said, that Justin Wren founded. It actually, uh, he's, it's a fascinating story when you look into it. Um, but generally speaking, he wanted to identify the most forgotten group of people on the planet. And he found this pygmy tribe and uh, decided he was going to go out there and see what he could do to help. Ultimately, it became like a process of like trying to work with like both the local government as well as other areas to try to make sure like anything they did didn't just get taken away, which is oftentimes what happened because this group of pygmy uh, tribe was like very much considered like subhuman in that area and anything they would got that was valuable would get taken away. So you have to kind of be strategic about how you work with that type of situation. So he started out with building wells, which was like a huge step in the right direction because essentially like in that tribe, about half of them would spend the entire day essentially trying to get clean water, drinkable water. So like they had to meet those basic needs before they could do anything else. And that meant half their population spending the entire day basically doing that. So step one was getting clean water that could be easily accessed, free up half the population for other things. So then they would be able to kind of progress at a more uh, you know steady pace or get off a zero, so to speak. Um, and it's just evolved into places where now they've, they've built like regenerative farms out there. They've built houses. They're actually currently finalizing some funding to build a hospital that will have like a full like wing for like uh, to for, for birthing and stuff like that. So they can actually, um, you know, have a higher survival rate when when the women in the tribe get pregnant. And uh, it's just fascinating what he's done and continues to do. So I was fortunate to meet him a few years ago and. Um, unfortunately I was planning on doing a big fundraising drive for him to run across the country, which is from San Francisco to New York city, which is just over 3000 miles. And I acquired an injury in the process. So I had to cancel that project, um, more or less kind of like battled that injury for about a year. And I've now kind of gotten back to where I've gone through a full training block, raced, recovered from that race. And now I've entered another training block with zero issues with it. So I'm pretty sure I've got that solved. Um, but now it's like, what do I learn from that experience? And I think one thing I learned is like the way I need to prepare for that type of a project is just going to be quite a bit different than what I would do for kind of the stuff I've raced traditionally. So I think what I'm going to likely do is help out with fight for their gotten in other ways for, for now. And then once I'm at a point where I'm no longer interested in running hundred mile races, we'll will kick off like kind of like a transformation where I'll train specifically for something that's just quite a bit different. Um, and then do that 
kind of maybe a little bit down the road, but it's definitely on the table still. Yeah, well, I was just going to ask about that. Yeah, because three thousand miles. It's so race across America, transcontinental. That that separate, or they are the same but just got different name. From the yeah, start. so race across America is typically referring to the bike race. They do a bike race where they go across it. Um, sometimes they'll call it Ram or race across America, but I mean, generally speaking, like, yeah, I think most people will refer to it as a transcontinental run, although there is record keeping with it. So some people have called it like the fastest known time. And then it's about like who can get from essentially San Francisco to New York, the quickest. <laughs> so with that, how is it that you would even prepare training for that? Cause you obviously can't train by running 3000 miles and <laughs> however many days what will be like 50 60 days you can't really do that so how did you approach it yeah. from a training standpoint well i mean i clearly did it wrong so or <laughs> <laughs> well, i would have done it but the i i kind of went about it the one of the kind of the key foundations i did when i was preparing for it was i didn't necessarily increase my overall volume by a lot but i sort of lopsided it a bunch and did a bunch of simulations where I would get pretty close to like, you know, running all day for a couple of days in a row and then would kind of recover from that. Um, I think that is still generally a decent approach to it, but I think what I need to do, I think I, what, where I made a mistake was there's probably a phase of maybe like four to six months that I need to go through before I do that, which is essentially just like bulletproofing or like building up a lot more kind of durability kind of in the lower leg, even lower body region. Um, because it's really not a speed thing. You know, when you, when you think about just like what it's going to take to run across the country, you just got to not get hurt really and keep moving day after day. So it's consistency at a very, very slow pace, even relative to running a hundred miles, but you can't get hurt along the way, or if you do, it's going to really cost you in time and you can't get hurt before, which I found out. Uh, so I think it's just going to be something where like, I need to like spend a good half a year, just sort of focusing on more strength and durability type stuff for a while in order to kind of put myself in a position where I can kind of tolerate the rigors that are going to be similar to something like that. And then, um, and then kind of go into the phase that I started with on this last, this last attempt, uh, which will be kind of like focusing on still some specifics where I'm practicing some like long sessions out there all day. Um, one thing I think I'll probably change a little bit more is I think there's a lot more application for more walking than what I was planning on doing. And, and that, that may help with some, like removing some of the impact off of it. So, uh, kind of a little more of an intermittent approach of like run walk kind of strategy would I think probably be the best best path forward so you're not kind of taxing your body the same way as you would from that running mechanic which is just going to drive a little more impact cool. so we could expect that this could be something in the horizon but for now you're focusing really on your 100 mile races is that fair to say yeah yeah and I did some other stuff for fight for the gotten earlier too like I did during the pandemic when the races were all canceled I did a, a treadmill challenge where I ran 100 miles on a treadmill um and live streamed it and brought in a bunch of guest speakers and stuff so i think there's some stuff like that that could be done in the years between now and then to kind of keep that that excitement and that awareness out on on my end so I'm, i'll be looking to maybe uh, explore some of those opportunities between now and when transcon does happen well so it's one thing to do 400 uh, meters on a track but another whole nother ballpark for <laughs> more. I yeah, it's much more different than you would think too. I thought it wouldn't be that much different from a monotony standpoint, but there's something about 
the treadmill sort of telling you what to do versus dictating the pace that kind of eats away at your mind differently. Hey, wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. It's, I find that I find this, this, this whole sport, it's just beyond me and, um, hence kind of why I'm doing it because I'm trying to explore is to uh, much like what you mentioned at the beginning, kind of where, where the mind can go. And it's something I'm very curious. I think there's an innate curiosity. Most ultra runners I've met, I've got this curiosity about them. There's like a sparkle in their eye, almost like a childlike curiosity. And I find that it's very contagious. I think it's sustainable too, in a way, as long as you're not going out there trying to hurt yourself. Yeah. It's a good way to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got to balance it with enough rest and recovery and yeah, yeah. not get too carried away or you do find yourself out of the sport, I think. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, I think most people, if they're really kind of paying attention and just acknowledging that that's a possibility, I think is probably the first step and the step that often gets missed when people do find themselves coming in and exiting because of, uh, you know, doing too much too soon or trying to jam too much into a small window. Yes, yes. And then quickly with um, your running shoes, Zach, I'm aware that you're sponsored by Ultra and that kind of more from the approach of the zero drop minimalist wide toe box style. This is something that I was very blessed to fall upon. It was a, a year and a half ago now. Uh, I think it was from listening to you. And I also intuitively, when I, I actually did the Camino Santiago, which is basically this pilgrimage from the south of France to, you start from the south of France and finish in Spain in this place called um, Santiago de Compostela. It's basically about a thousand kilometers of walking. In that process, I met this couple and they were wearing these sandals, king, king sandals. <laughs> Yeah, Very minimal. And I was kind of looking at them like, what are you doing like wearing that for such a long way? And then everyone else is wearing hiking boots. But something in my brain was like, you know what, I'm going to try it. I had these running shoes. I threw them out. I went to the next store where there was in this little village. I bought the sandals and I did that whole duration task in those sandals and my feet and body felt amazing. And that's kind of what planted the seed. Um, and then further down the track, I was kind of doing a bit of running and then one day I realized that oh I don't have my shoes I might stuff it I'll just go bare feet and it worked but I had this kind of idea and stigma that it was I'm gonna destroy my feet I'm gonna break my bones I'm I'm gonna get an injury and I just felt amazing and then I found out about ultra and that's who you're sponsored by and you kind of follow a similar approach not so much barefoot but you follow that approach with zero drop and by zero drop folks, I mean the stack kite, the difference between the toe box and the heel, that kind of there's a neutral, there's a neutral alignment, you could say. And do you find that something for you, Zach, that has had quite an impact on your performance and your running versus what you had prior? <clears throat> yeah, I would say maybe more so earlier in my career, just because of the way the racing shoe world has sort of shifted in the last few years. I think like um generally speaking, when you're looking at injury risk, user identified comfort is going to be something that is very much worth considering in terms of kind of short term kind of potential issues. But that comes at a consequence oftentimes where if you do, if you lean into that too much, you can weaken your leg muscles in a way where now you're just more prone to injuries if things do go wrong. So uh, if you're going to do like a more of a minimalist approach, you're going to build strong lower legs and that can be very useful. But, um, if you're going to try to go, like if you're trying to extend your body past what it's capable of, even at its strongest, there's probably going to be some application for, you know, different types of like products that are going to be useful. Um, so to kind of go into like the performance side of it, 
historically you'd want as you'd want a minimalist shoe on race day if you could get away with it. It's just most people couldn't get away with it when you get into these longer stuff. If you had like a really thin slab of rubber underfoot or a sandal or something like that, it's like, yeah, you're going to get a great response off the ground, but can your lower legs tolerate it? So for me, the, the goal was get myself so strong in the lower leg side of things where I could race in like a really tiny, almost minimalist type shoe. So I could leverage the performance benefits of that versus something that's heavier, softer, and likely going to be slower from the performance side. Um, but now they make this new midsole foam where, um, it essentially has like a better return of energy than even like a thin slab of rubber on concrete. So racing shoes have even shifted towards that now. So now we're kind of in a world where like, yeah, you want to still pay attention to mechanics. You want to pay attention to like, uh, foot strength and things like that, just from like a health and overall functionability standpoint, but on race day, the fastest way to the finish line is going to be with the new shoe technology, like at least on the roads, on the trails. I think there's, there's a lot of like difference there where that, that, that technology doesn't necessarily transition that way. But generally speaking, I think, yeah, I think like, you know, people could, most people are going to benefit from some sort of foot strengthening stuff. So if that's like putting on a low profile, more balanced cushion type of shoe from time to time, that's going to be useful. If someone is like, Hey, I've got this pair of shoes that works well for me and I can't make this other one work walking around barefoot or doing some like light running on grass or sand or something like that. Barefoot can go a long ways to kind of start that foot strengthening process. I think a lot of people, they atrophied their feet, their lower legs, they got injured. And now they're in a weird spot where they're injured and weak. So like you can't get away with a lot when you're injured and weak. Um, and then that what all that means is like the path forward isn't just masking the injury or masking the weakness once the injury is gone, but starting and building up that strength so that injury is less likely, almost regardless of what shoe you wear, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. And also, I kind of got a question. Is it fair? Do you, what would you think Kipchoge's time would be if he had used a minimal shoe versus the advanced like carbon plate shoe? Do you think he would have a different outcome? Yeah, I think he'd be slower. Um, be, yeah, he'd be slower, and he'd probably be injured because if he's running in the carbon plate shoe in a regular basis and throwing on a min, so that's kind of like where it was at. Where it was like even marathoners had a hard time getting away with like something as 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 thin as like a minimalist shoe, or they'd find themselves getting getting injured doing that. And part of that was just they they did not run in stuff often enough to build up that lower leg strength required. Although, you know, it, who knows? There's also individual components. They're also running these things in like a four and a half minute mile pace. So like the impact forces at that pace are going to be different. So um, there's a lot to consider with that. But yeah, I think like if you look at just, I bet you if we, the, the way to think about it probably is we'd put Kipchoge on a, on a treadmill or even on a road with some force plates on it, put them barefoot pair of minimalist shoes versus um, the, the suit, any super shoe, he's going to get from point A to point B faster than the super shoe. So it's sort of like, <clears throat> it's kind of similar to like cycling or swimming when swimming had those speed suits for a while, which they went on and regulated or banned altogether. I think after all the records got broke with those, whereas cycling kind of went the opposite direction, which is kind of the direction running seems to be going, which is let the technology advance within reason. And then we'll, uh, we'll just see the records shift and versus what we would have seen in the past with the with the old tech. Um, the interesting thing about it though, is I think it's like, I understand the bike side of it to some degree, because it's like you're that sports human powered with a piece of equipment 
that is very much part of the forward movement process, like the, the bike itself. So improving that seems like some of a, like a logical progression of the sport, whereas swimming, you're putting a suit on, which really isn't necessarily part of the, certainly in the pool anyway, part of the sport. So I kind of feel like that's maybe like one of the, why they went the opposite direction running. I would actually is probably somewhere in between. I mean, everyone's basically running in shoes for the most part, but like, um, to the degree at which that's part of the sport is kind of maybe a little odd to me, uh, anyway. So it's one of those things where I don't think we're putting that, that, uh, toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak at this point. So you kind of either have to embrace it or, uh, take your few percent reduction in performance at this point in time. Fascinating. Well, Zach, I, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Um, it's fair. I'd, I'd like to pick your brain more, but obviously for time, um, is there any, how do I, how, how can I put this? Like for you, for you, you're obviously this, this elite athlete. How is there any words for wisdom for people that want to kind of pursue their own quote unquote ultra marathon? What would be like something if you're to say coming from a life coach perspective, what would be some words of wisdom that you would instill upon me and the listeners? Yeah, I think don't don't avoid thinking big, but make sure you're you're being reasonable with yourself early on. I think it's like when I think of you know training, uh, you know I didn't if I was to do the training program I am now when I first started, I wouldn't have lasted a, a week, much less the amount of years I have. So you have to be both um, aggressive in your goal setting, but also reasonable with the timeline in which you expect to get there, and be be mindful of the the small wins along the way, so that you have that motivation and can can kind of see that progress and don't get overly fixated on that end goal in the short term. Mm, beautiful. <laughs> Probably couldn't have said any, been said any better. <laughs> well, yeah, I appreciate it, Zach. And um, yeah, I'll keep you posted on my race because yeah, in a way it's your, your plan is it's more or less what I've been following. I've, I've tweaked it a bit just specific to me because everyone's different, but yeah, I'd love yeah. to share how that went. And um, yeah, any other questions I have, I'll yeah, more than, I'll be, I'd love to pick your brain if you have time. So, yeah. And for people that want to um, find, you know, cause you're obviously a coach too, and you have those services and you've got your, your Instagram and even your sponsors, is there any kind of a one-stop shop people can go to where you best kind of want to share? Yeah. The easiest spot to find like all my social media channels, podcast, uh, coaching, all that stuff, just my website, which is zachbitter.com. Oh, that's very easy. Nice, nice and consolidated. Yeah, I'll add all those show links um, in the notes. And yeah, thank you for your time, Zach. I really appreciate it. It means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a bunch for having me on. Cool. I'll catch you later. Eh? Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, hello. How were we, people? How was that conversation? Let me know. I'd love to know. Uh, listening back to it, I was again, yeah, very impressed with Zach's knowledge. He's a very astute, very forward-thinking man, and he really breaks down everything. And he's very intentional as to why he does the things he does, both from his training and both from his life outlook. He seems to be very well versed and um, considered in every step he takes, and that really is emitted in this conversation. And I like that, and I like being able to share. Um, my questions with him and have him dissect it and answer it in such a way where he almost goes beyond the question I ask and he forces me to really kind of meet him 
halfway with his knowledge and I've, I was really pushed on this conversation I must admit and I was quite nervous so I'm glad that's that's the whole point of these conversations I want them to be challenging somewhat so that was that so yeah I'd love to hear and love to know how you thought the conversation went and what came up um, thank you once again to Zach and to his amazing feats of endurance um, to any of those out there that want to go forth and do a hundred mile race or any sort of endurance race just reach out to Zach and yeah I'm sure he'll be willing to help out and offer his services because he has a lot of them um, I'll share all the links um, to that in the show notes and also just another quick shout out to the sponsor so well check out the website check out the instagrams at Stefan Ozic um, and the website is sowellness.net where you can find and explore ultimate wellness ultimate health and become better as a human and where you can explore that and journey that together so thank you to that um, and to all of you listeners i love you all and thank you for your time and i'll see you on the next episode peace